Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and a warm welcome to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and in this weekly series I'll be chatting to original thinkers, campaigners, creators, performers and the occasional provocateur. After three decades of Channel 4 I'm free of the daily news agenda and I'm excited about exploring my interests with intriguing guests. The first of these is John Ronson, a brilliant writer who made his name interviewing people on the fringes of society. Extremists, conspiracy theorists those who've been publicly shamed and, more recently, individuals whose stories are intertwined with the culture wars of the present day. John describes himself as a humanist journalist. He's curious, empathetic, and at his happiest when immersed in stories that help him understand the world. He's now based in upstate New York, but this conversation was recorded in London in November 2022, hot on the heels of the US midterm elections and Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. I hope you enjoy it. John, you're a talkative boy. As a child, were you very talkative? No. I mean, my memory of myself as a child was I was quiet, probably quiet, but now. I remember myself as a quiet, but now child. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I said to my mother, because I had a memory of going to see a therapist as a very young child, once or twice. That's where it all comes from. <laughs> well, I said to my mother, like, just a couple of years ago, I said, why did you send me to a therapist? Do you remember why you did it? And she thought for a while and she said, um, I remember you were a pain in the ass." <laughs> <laughs> So maybe I wasn't as quiet and banal as I remember. Can I lower the tone for a moment? I'm a novice completely. This, you are my first ever interview in this genre. Are you allowed to use pain in the arse in a podcast? Yes. You can do anything, John. So what are the limits? Are there none? This is the Wild West. Look, I've been in a regulated broadcaster for 50 years. Do anything. I can't manage. <laughs> <laughs> What's going to be unleashed? <laughs> it's all right. It's already there. This is why I think podcasting is such an ex still such an exciting medium, because it is the Wild West. You can do whatever you want. Narrative, you know, different ways of trying out narrative. You can do anything. It's my first, and I'm therefore in your hands. Is it differing? I mean, how can it differ from you interviewing someone on Channel 4 News? I think the thing is that on Channel 4 News, you, you have a sort of 
status for some reason, um, because you've done it so often and you speak with the Queen's English and pound along and people don't question you. But this is different. This is different. Right. And are you finding it more nerve-wracking? Yes, because there are no holes barred. Yeah. And therefore, I want to ask you, how would you describe yourself as a journalist? Well, I think it's probably changed as I got older. Now, I'd say I'm somebody who is mainly interested in being curious and empathetic and interested in mystery. I've always sort of seen myself a little bit like those people in the van in Scooby-Doo, like going off to try and solve mysteries, because that's the wind behind my sails. I always want to try and understand a world that I don't understand. So I go into a world that I don't understand with curiosity and empathy. And I'd say that's kind of grown over the years, in the early days. I was thinking about this on the way here. I mean, I'm sure it's the same with you. Like when I was a child, you're older than me, but when I was a child, our sort of iconic figure was Robin Day. Mm who was so scabrous and charismatic. And then Jamie Paxman came along in a similar way, and, and you came along in a similar way. And you all sort of had a similar sort of, you know, you were tough. You were tough mm. interviewers. I remember the famous Jamie Paxman line that he would always think, why is this bastard lying to me? <laughs> and I certainly, coming up that way and admiring you all and wanting to be a journalist, that's what I thought I would be doing. And it's what I suppose I started doing. But it didn't really sit well with me. I didn't want to be an adversarial journalist. And so eventually that kind of drained away and I became a different type of journalist. But you made a name for yourself by penetrating the fringes of society and talking to people many of us had never heard word of before. Yeah. Well, in the early days, I was pretty much the first person to interview Alex Jones, who's mm. now America's leading conspiracy peddler. Mm -hmm. And I suppose even back then, I wasn't out to get them. I was out to try and understand them. Adventures with Extremists. That was your book in 2001. Yeah, them, Adventures with Extremists. And what did you deduce? Was there something in common with them all? Well, yes, what they had in common, they all believed in the existence of a secret room from which a shadowy cabal was secretly ruling the world. And now I guess people know that about political and religious extremists, that they're conspiracy theorists. But People didn't really think about that back then, and it was like an early... It was like a revelation that I had. Because I'd spent some time with the Ku Klux Klan. This was a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan in Harrison, Arkansas, that was trying to do an image makeover. And they'd said, did you know that there was a shadowy cabal secretly ruling the world? And the same thing happened with Omar Bakri Mohammed in North London from al Muhajirun. His people said exactly the same thing. So then became a book about... They all believe that there's a secret room. Why do I hook up with the conspiracy theorists. And, and we'll get into the room. Get into the room. I remember um, when I had that, I just thought, and this is the greatest idea of my life, because <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen, but whatever happens is going to be interesting. I mean, obviously, I hoped that there would be a secret room and I would try and sneak into it. But then I thought, you know, this is perfect. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm excited and I'm sure it's going to be good. What about the you who penetrated the secret room? What sort of a child were you? I mean, were you very intellectual or were you out there playing rugby football? I mean, what, what? No, I mean, I did play rugby football, but Jesus, I wouldn't say that was like my favourite times. Likewise, heavy heart. Yeah, very heavy. I was a prop. I was number eight. Okay. <laughs> but tall enough in the line out to get kicked every time the ball came in. Ugh, it was just horrific. So uh, I think I was very on my own. All my childhood memories of being alone 
it having a like an active imagination. Therefore, in a secret room of your own. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You know what? There was a bush next to our house, and I'd spend hours just sitting in the bush, like a soldier on hideout, waiting for the enemy. So I spent a lot of my childhood doing that. I remember joining the I Spy Club. Do you remember the I Spy Club? I do. Yeah, with a, and I got all the stuff. Mm. There was like a little kit would come mm. and you'd be like mm. a detective. So those are my memories. And I had imaginary friends. And But you were only a child? No, I had a brother, Daniel. But he was off doing his own thing. <laughs> <laughs> he was two years older than me and very much had his own life. Do you think, having mentioned Alex Jones, that those conspiracy theorists like him, do you think they should be deplatformed, kind of written out of the script? Well, as we speak today, it's a big moment for deplatforming because Elon Musk says he's going to grant an amnesty to all of the suspended accounts. So Twitter's going to become like that scene in Poltergeist where all the all the corpses emerge from the mud to seek revenge on the fact that they built the development over their cemetery. With Alex, I mean, I've thought about it a lot. Our lives are weirdly entwined because we did this big story together in the 90s where we snuck into the secret club called Bohemian Grove where Henry Kissinger was involved in a ritual that culminated in a human effigy being thrown into the fiery belly of a giant stone owl. Good God. I know. So me and Alex snuck into this place and secretly filmed it. Alex went off and made a documentary called Dark Secrets Inside Bohemian Grove, where he claimed that we had probably witnessed an actual human sacrifice, which put me into the odd position of having to temper Alex's claims. I had to become a kind of self-appointed defender of the Bush family's right to have a mock human sacrifice. So then Alex went from strength to strength. Bohemian Grove, his did well for him. Then 9-11 happened. And the morning of 9-11... The first thing he said, a couple of hours after it happened, he said, I told you so, I told you there'd be a false flag operation. So within hours of it happening, Alex became the world's first 9-11 truther and became like the biggest 9-11 truther and became hugely rich, could make $100,000 a day in selling these supplements. This is all on a show called InfoWars. He got very rich, started selling supplements, got more and more reckless, And then when the Sandy Hook school shooting happened, he again immediately, you know, was like, yeah, this is a false flag. And that turned into his legions of listeners. You know, they would chase the parents of murdered children down the street saying, how dare you lie about your child being dead? In a sense, though, you then get Trump and you are suddenly seeing a post-truth landscape led by the President of the United States. Shocking. And, you know, Trump went on Alex's show. I was at the gym. This was 2016 when Hillary Clinton was giving a speech and none of the channels were showing the speech. The channels were showing the podium from which Trump would soon speak. So I was watching one of these and Trump was doing a Q&A and somebody said, are you going to go back on the Alex Jones show? And Trump went, Alex Jones, good guy. And I nearly fell off my elliptical. <laughs> I had no idea. Like, if any of the people I've interviewed would have the ear of the president-to-be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be hoping it was Alex. But isn't it an incredible thing that he ever was president? Don't you find that incredible, extraordinary? Yeah. And what does it say about the United States? Well, the optimistic thing, I remember thinking this at the time, the country that elects Trump will also be the country that gets rid of Trump. 
And but have they got rid of Trump? Well, we'll see. Uh, okay, the signs are that they have, but... Yeah, but there is a nightmare scenario. There's a nightmare future story that Biden doesn't stand for a second term. There's nobody obvious waiting in the wings. They bring somebody in who's, who will lose to Trump. That's quite... That's a possibility. So it's, it's the Democrats to lose. And my God, they're capable of losing it. But look, you live in America. Yeah. Explain how Trump works in terms of America. I mean, I was surprised that that many people would be willing to suspend their rationality and vote for Trump. Hillary was far less popular than people thought. You know, the rot set in when Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the chairperson of the Democrat Party, was clearly angling everything in favour of Hillary getting the nomination and not Bernie Sanders. The minute that happened, it was a terrible mistake. The rot set I mean, who knows whether Bernie would have beaten Trump, but we know what happened when Hillary stood against Trump. It was a terrible thing for the party to do, I think. Hillary was wildly unpopular. America's a big country. There's a lot of, like, isolated communities where conspiratorial thought sort of burgeons in people's minds. There's conspiracy theories everywhere. I've got neighbours and friends who are conspiracy theorists where I live in upstate New York. Um, Why do you get conspiracy theorists in America and not in Britain? Surely we're tailor-made for a conspiracy. Well, we do get them in Britain. I mean, David Icke is one of the world's leading (laughs) conspiracy theorists, and he is British. But there's something about the isolated communities, the disparate media. I'd say that the quote-unquote legacy media made a lot of mistakes around the time and throughout the Trump presidency. I watched CNN. I was so against Trump. I was desperately looking for like-minded, aghast people. And I found CNN. And for four years, I just watched CNN every night. And I was told over and over again by Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper and what a terrible mistake and complete failure Trump was. That's what CNN told us for four years. And then after four years, he almost got a second term. So I began to feel very uneasy about just how partisan the media became in the United States. That had a lot to do with it. Explain Trump. And is he going to come back? Well, okay, explain Trump. I covered the last election, but at the same time, I can't explain him, except does it ask me to explain the American people? Well, there's a few things going on. It was was certainly very dispiriting that enough people, say, suspended their morality to vote for him. 30% 30% of Americans, or, or you know, roughly, are his base, and they just believe what he believes, and they like the fact that he's a jerk and a troll. You're seeing this with Elon Musk and all of his kind of bro fans on Twitter at the moment. There's a big subsection of the American population that's sick of the left being too policing and want to be jerk trolls. And Trump brought that out in people. Trump also brought out the Christians because it was all about abortion. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of evangelical Christians out there who held their noses and voted for Trump for that one issue. They wanted Roe versus Wade overturned. And so he, I'm sure Trump doesn't give a damn either way about abortion, but he knew that that was going to get him elected. Mm. So I think those are two reasons. Those are two ways you explain Trump. People want to temper what they see as overly policing from the left with like, you know, screw you, I'm just going to be an asshole. Twitter and Elon Musk, you've mentioned him twice. Is it the end of Twitter? I mean, I speak as somebody who absolutely reveled in Twitter. I used it extensively and rewardingly. Do you go back? Are you there now? No, 
I mean, I'm drifting about. I mean, I, I wouldn't not use it, but I don't find myself, uh, and that may be because I've retired from Channel 4 News, but at the same time, I'm very actively thinking my way through what's going on, and Twitter is tremendously useful for kicking the ball. Which might mean that it's not the end of Twitter. There was clearly some danger about at the beginning when he fired you know, thousands of people and everybody thought Twitter was going to go mm. down that weekend or the next week, and it didn't. I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. There's nothing quite like Twitter when it comes to the things that we want out of Twitter, like breaking news and people being funny to you know with each other. Mm -hmm. And you know, no other platform can replicate that. So it's possible that people will just you know hold their noses about the things they don't like that Elon Musk is going to bring in, and it will survive. It's possible. I haven't left. I mean, I don't post anymore, but I lurk. Do you think with today's cancel culture, there's a a really worrying lack of distinction between mistakes and genuine wrongdoing that the public, well, pile on is too fast and too furious. Oh, yeah. Twitter has always been the world's worst information swapping service. And couple that with this kind of well, race. Why, why do we act on it then? Why, 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 do we, why do we use it? It's prodding at some of the worst parts of our brains. <laughs> you know, there's all these social scientists have said over the years that and this is a very obvious thought, but it's something worth bearing in mind, that violence is worse always when the uh, person committing the violence believes that they're doing it in a moral cause. And I think that's happening a lot on Twitter. The, the fact that it's become like a morality battle is just make, makes everybody like want to jump in on something. And so often, you know, we destroy somebody and then two days later it turns out that the information was all wrong and if we'd only waited two days we'd have realised that the person wasn't anywhere near as bad as we thought they were. Very often if somebody's like lashing out on Twitter, you know, committing some sort of linguistic transgression, it may be because there's, their life is falling apart, things are happening mm. to them in other parts of their lives, but nobody cares about that. We're like, we're Miss Marples who are like taking a tiniest slither of information about somebody and thinking we know everything about mm, that person mm. because they're the representative of some ideology that we don't like. And it's all nonsense. You know, humans are a mess. We're clever, we're stupid, we're good, we're bad, we're a great big mess. And Twitter is actively against thinking of humans in that way. Do you think the Elon Musk period of Twitter is now in the balance? There was some bias, I would say. Uh, liberal? Yeah, there was some liberal bias. Most of the... People like me? Yeah. Oh, I mean, damn I'm, it. I'm, I'm no liberal. Yes, I am. <laughs> right. And me. You know, when I would see Alex Jones and people like that being deplatformed, I was fine with it. And I, and still I'm fine with, mm -hmm. with Alex being deplatformed because there was real harm. Mm. You know, there was very tangible harm that he did. But but in the old period of, of Twitter, I never really worried about being on it and using it. And using it, I hope, productively. Mm. And now I fear it and I, I'm, not, I'm not so active. Elon Musk is, you know... The old Twitter had its problems in mm. that it was selective about who it would deplatform, and it was a slippery slope. For every Alex Jones, there was somebody who probably shouldn't have been deplatformed for what they did. So there were problems. It was there was too much of a liberal bias. But of course, what Musk is doing, which is what always happens in the culture wars, is is he's trying to fix the problem by creating a the same but opposite problem. Do you worry about? people turning away from fact-based 
information? Yes, I worry about that. And I worry about that from across the spectrum, I, I think. And is it worse in America than it is here? For yes, example? I'd say that. I'd say across the spectrum, on the right and the left, and in the center, to be honest, there are people who favor high ideological excellence over factual evidence. And I think it happens in every corner of the American media, from the quote-unquote legacy media through to the far-right media. I think it's a mistake that everybody makes. Uh, actually, tomorrow I'm, I'm off to Brussels to give a talk at Google about misinformation, and this is the point I'm going to make to all of these fact-checkers who are going to be mm -hmm, in the audience, mm -hmm. which is that this is happening everywhere. And the minute you succumb to bias, you've lost. So how do you deal with it? Um... Personally, I, I think the great majority of people prefer truth to bullshit and enjoy pointing out bullshit. Sure, but if they're pounded with what you call bullshit, mm. I've never used that before in a live microphone, but there we are. This is a brave new world, John. It sure is, man. I'm it's dangerous I'm, too. I've taken your hand and led you into <laughs> a world where you can now say bullshit during interviews. Okay, if you're pounded with bullshit, <laughs> then... You know, eventually you get ground down and go with it. I mean, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but look what happened in the American midterms. The optimistic way of looking at this is that 30% of the American population you've lost. Maybe even more. I think the organization More in Common says something like 14% are just completely extreme and hardcore. There's nothing you can do. There's another 20% that are basically pretty hardcore, mainly on the right, but also on the left. You've lost them. But the other 70% of the population you haven't lost. Within that 30%, you've got narcissists. You're never going to win over a narcissist. You've got people with fixed delusional beliefs. There's nothing mm. you can do with those people. But with the 70% of the people, there is. And a lot of them voted for Trump. And then come the midterms, it just happened, a whole bunch of them turned away from Trump. And all the election deniers, they turned away from the election deniers. And it, I thought that was a very positive thing. Like a lot of people had touched the stove, realized it was hot, and didn't want to go there anymore. And then when Elon Musk took over Twitter, and people immediately started setting up those fake corporate accounts to mock his irresponsibility by doing comedy misinformation. Again, I thought that was a very positive thing. It's like the great majority of people don't want this. Here's news. John Runson is an optimist. Right now, I'm feeling optimistic about the future for all of those reasons. I think when it comes to the right, to misinformation on the far right, I think we've probably reached rock bottom. However, I would say there's other types of misinformation that aren't being addressed quite so much, which is some of this sort of ideological misinformation that's coming from the left, where ideology sort of trumps factual evidence. Now, I'm not saying it's happening like, you know, all over the place, but it is happening. But that coupled with a drift away from traditional fact-based checked channels where there's regulation and the rest of it, mm. surely is a worry. I mean, the, the worry is if... Because right now you go on Twitter, there's still fact-check boxes. And you have to trust the fact-checkers. And what I'm going to be saying at Google tomorrow is that the way to trust fact-checkers is for the fact-checkers to be unbiased. Mm. That's still there. When I see a fact-check box, I mean, I know I'm like sheeple. You know, I was sheeple when it came to the pandemic. I did everything that people told me to do. And I'm sheeple when it comes to this. But when I see a fact-check box at the top of Twitter, it's comforting. It's like, okay, I believe this. Hmm. Now, there are a lot of people out there who just think those of us who feel that way are naive. But I think most people, you know, trust, you know. I certainly did, but it is imbalanced at the moment. I mean, if Twitter just becomes a total hellhole, 
then people will leave. Not only are we not... Are you be- tweeting less? Oh, I don't tweet at all anymore. I'm Eve after eating the apple. I just think, what's the point? I remember years ago, I met one of the South Park guys and he was talking about Lena Dunham. And he said, uh, Lena Dunham has her own show on HBO. Like, girl, she gets to express herself in this show in the most nuanced, perfect way. She has all the time in the world to make her points perfect. And then she, like, goes on Twitter and, like, ruins it all by just blaring out nonsense. And it did make me realise that there's some people out there, and there's an American journalist, Molly Jong Fast, who's a good example, who are just exceptionally good at Twitter. And I think the rest of us, especially if we're lucky enough to have other platforms, like I get to make documentaries and podcasts, it's like, if that's not your mode of communication, then don't do it. That's what I'm not doing it. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. You've spoken very openly about your own anxiety. How have you managed to combat it? And to what extent does it inform your journalism? I think it probably informs it a lot. Because I have sort of social anxiety and social awkwardness. I haven't noticed it here. Well, I'm here doing a thing. I feel very easy with you. I have no anxiety in talking to you. And you don't appear to have any anxiety talking to me. I don't right now. (laughs) uh, But... If I knew that in three hours' time I was going to join a dinner party for eight people at Jon Snow's house, it would be hard for me to function. Why? I don't know. Anxiety is like a stupid thing that just gets itself into people's brains. But one positive thing about it, and I've often thought this, somebody asked Louis Theroux one time, I always thought he gave a very good answer, like, why do you do it? And Louis said, because not doing it is worse. And you do have to, like, go through the pain of going into difficult situations which can be dangerous physically dangerous but also anxiety inducing and so on then you get to go home with the material and you can spend weeks at home making it work as a story and that's where i'm happy when i'm just on my own in a room making it all work as a story you see i find it hard to believe that you were diagnosed with adjustment disorder i mean i don't know you well i've only interviewed you a couple of times on jennifer news and i feel completely at ease with you I mean, you, you're fast, you're rapid fire. Uh, well, that's because I've drunk a lot of coffee. Well, come, come. You are. Well, the adjustment disorder, luckily, was a contained thing. It lasted maybe a year. Hmm. Well, I didn't do any interviews, actually. I did one or two, and they were a mistake, because I was still pretty kind of vulnerable. There's one or two podcast interviews out there where I sort of wish they weren't out there, because I was still, you know, sort of ill. But now I'm completely... I mean, the great thing about adjustment disorder is, is that it goes away when you fix the problem. It's not like 
situational depression. No, it is situational depression. It's not like systemic depression, which is, I think, much worse. So, uh, I don't know. It's, if I'm at home, you know, I ruminate. It's possible that one thing will be said during this interview that I will then spend, you know, ages ruminating on. That was a mistake. I should have said that. Would people take it the wrong way? So, you know, your brain sort of punishes you later on sometimes. Do you think that this experience, if you like to put it that way, rather than illness, experience, mm. I, I prefer to that. Yes. I don't see you as a person who's ill. I see you as a person with interesting, if sometimes strange, experiences. Yes. And they're rather informative. But do you find in some way that, I don't know, that they are alien in some way? Because I don't find them alien. No, I don't at all. It's funny, I, what just popped in my head was Krishnan interviewed me. At, um, this is my old colleague, Krishnan Guru Murthy, for those yeah. who don't know, the Channel 4 News. Yes, and I brought up the fact that I had this thing, adjustment disorder, and, and at one point he sort of said to me, like, you know, why, why are you, you, know, why are you <laughs> talking about this? Uh, and I said, because it's interesting. Mm. Like, I'd just been through this experience mm. that I, I also, you know, mm. had found interesting, that your brain could suddenly change into a whole different thing. But you see, I think this is the core of journalism. I mm. think you need to have been exposed to all sorts of extraordinary and unlikely situations. Well, I've got a question for you. <laughs> uh, so when I got my adjustment disorder, it was directly linked, I think, to me worrying about ethics. Like, I was doing a particularly difficult story about a porn star who had just taken her life, and the whole ethics of it just began to, like, weigh so heavily on me that something, like, clicked in my brain. Mm. So you're forever in ethically difficult situations. That's been your whole career. You're interviewing somebody, you're, you know, you're going to be oppositional. We both know that being a journalist at its worst can be like being a mugger. You know, you go into somebody and punch them and then you take their money and then they're left with the Inefficient mugger in my case. Right. <laughs> uh, so have you ever had that thing where the ethics of what we do sort of weighs heavily on you and you felt yourself? Oh, yes. Mm. I think sometimes when you quite unexpectedly reduce somebody to tears and you think, hell, what did I say? What, mm. what, what was it that triggered this? This is awful. Mm. And yet it may have been the most telling result of the interview that you could possibly have have got so we're always weighing those things up like when we do a story who are we doing it for mm. are we doing it for the greater good are we doing it for society and now often obviously when you're doing politics that's a whole different and thing. how damaging are we being to the person we're interviewing yeah and to the system if we're adversarial are we creating an overly adversarial system with our voices trouble is when you talk about system there is a system and the system is a very well-organized political structure here in Britain, for example, where, you know, you can get away with emotion-free activity. And that's not good for humanity. You need emotion. Yes. And your job as a, a communicator is to bring emotion into the story and try to get at the truth by testing the emotion. Yes. Well, there's no question that Britain has needed and continues to need people who do the type of journalism that, that you and Jeremy Paxman and so on have done. Like, you know, that's very necessary. But I think that sometimes that type of journalism, the adversarial journalism, in Britain in particular, goes too far mm. and, and like goes into, like, arts reporting. Mm. Uh, it, it's, I think the BBC's a lot better now than, than it 
used to be with mm. that. But sometimes I think it's a little knee-jerk adversarial. Listen, I've never worked for the BBC, but I'm a remorseless supporter of the BBC and approver of it. I mean, mm. of course, there are little bits that you query and question, but fundamentally, by God, we're lucky. And I oh think it's the absence of a BBC in the United States, you know, for mm. all that there are efforts to produce something in public radio and the rest of it. But that is, I think, one of the great letdowns for America. I agree. Like The closest to the BBC in America, obviously, is national public yeah. radio. And that's that's changed. But that's not a mass audience either. I it's, mean, it's not a, a mass minority. audience. And it's become more partisan than it used to be. Whereas the BBC, I think, has sailed that ship very well. Absolutely. And we are blessed indeed. And our democracy is protected by the existence of the BBC. And there I am speaking as somebody who thought he was some sort of a rival on Channel 4 News. (laughs) Right. I couldn't agree more. You know, I've just started my second season of Things Fell Apart, which is Mm -hmm. my Radio 4 show. Oh, great. And now I really understand. You know, over the years, people have said to me, like Adam Curtis, and, you know, people like that have said to me, you know, that sometimes they got offered, you know, riches from other places, but they're never going to do it because they're loyal to the BBC. And I really, now that I'm working for them properly... I really get it. Like, I understand why people are loyal to the BBC. Like, the experience I have there, that's so clever and thoughtful and know how to handle someone like me. Whereas you go to the independent markets and it can be the opposite. Now, you deliberately chose to look at the world today via origin stories to avoid pouring oil on the fire. Did you succeed? Uh... Well, in my last show, Things Fell Apart, yeah. there was one episode in particular which was about this guy called Steve Peters. He was a pastor living with full-blown AIDS in 1984, and he went on Tammy Faye Baker's chat show. Mm. And it was like a lovely moment of like healing where these two communities came together. It was a very emotional episode. It's, it's episode three of the show. It's called A Miracle. Things fell apart. This story is about a rare watershed moment of harmony in a brutal culture war. I want to tell you, there's a lot of Christians here who love you and who wouldn't be afraid to put their arm around you and tell you that we love you and that we care. And I think that really helped. I had so many messages from people saying that they were driving up the M6 and they were crying so hard listening to that episode. They had to, like, pull over... And the reason why they were crying is because that episode is all about things coming together, not things mm, falling apart. Mm, mm. And it did make me think people are really sick of of the polarization. You know, we're all, as I say in my book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, we're all like unpaid shaming interns for Google. They're making all this money and we're getting nothing. And I think people are just sick of it. They're sick of the polarization. They're sick of the whole thing. And that's why people responded so emotionally to that particular episode of my show. And I think, you know, the midterms, the fact that they were much more balanced than people thought mm. that they would be, is evidence of that. That's, you know, these are all the reasons why I'm optimistic. Well, let's go upbeat, because your favourite story is one of hope. And it's one which embodies your belief that wars end when people listen to each other. Well, yeah. Where's your evidence? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I've got you there. He's full of shit, this guy. (laughs) I've got to say, like, when I put that episode out, A Miracle, and all of these people were, like, saying, you know, this was so moving. You know, but then you get back on Twitter and you're you're fighting each other straight away after that. So, yeah, maybe I was being a little too optimistic. 
there's always been a battle between in journalism between you know ideology and evidence between curiosity and damnation between hierarchy and no hierarchy we have to think of ourselves you know what kind of footprint do we want to leave in the world you know when we go into mm. a situation are we hierarchical mm. am i going into the situation thinking i'm morally better than that person mm. or am i going into a situation thinking you know i'm curious but amid the optimism do you look back occasionally and think about your own arguments on trans rights for example well, I've tried to stay away from trans rights <laughs> as much as possible. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what happened, if you like. Mm. I stayed away completely from trans rights right. for years and years and years. And then I was in Edinburgh. I was doing a show. And I was, like, falling asleep at the Malmaison. And just <laughs> as I fell asleep, I saw somebody tweet Graham Linehan, who's, like, an old friend of mine of 20 years. Why does John Ronson still follow you on Twitter? Now, Graham is a gender critical, a very outspoken and mm. ferocious gender-critical activist. And so why is just John Ronson still so following? Just explain that for a minute. It's it's somebody who believes that sex and gender are two very different things. You know, you the, mean biological yeah. doesn't necessarily mean... Yeah, they think that there's a whole ideology coming up from people like Judith Butler, who basically say that, you know, you can just change your sex whatever you want and mm. you know everybody should be much more gender fluid and this is like a younger generation coming up saying all of this stuff you know and then people like Graham are like very much against that for lots of different reasons women in sport the medicalization of children you know there's all sorts of things that they were like you know but Graham unfortunately was doing this in a very bellicose way he would go on Twitter like with his sleeves rolled up and just ready for a punch up like every day and I found that completely unconnected to which side you are. And I thought mm. that was a really bad thing that he was yeah. doing. You know, a friend of mine said something hostile and a pylon happened because of her. And I just thought this was a terrible thing. So I was falling asleep and somebody tweeted, Graham, why does John Ronson still follow you on Twitter? And just as I fell asleep, Graham tweeted, because he thinks you're all assholes or something along those mm -hmm. lines, where actually I was sitting there thinking, I'm really against, you know, wherever you stand on these issues, I'm really against the way Graham's behaving on Twitter. So the next morning I woke up, I saw that Graham had just decided that I thought that all of his critics were assholes, and I made my mistake. And my mistake was not to DM him and say, Graham, please leave me out of this. But I said it publicly. I, I replied to him, and I said, I don't, think that your critics are ourselves and I think you've been acting like a bully and that was it that was my entire discourse for like three years and as a result of that the gates of hell opened I would say that Graham has tweeted about me or, or written blogs about me probably a thousand times and of course most people out there who've read all of these things that Graham have written and like I'm on lists I'm on lists of trans rights activists like you know I'm on so many lists all because of that one thing. So all these people out there just assume that I'm out there, I don't know, like on the board of directors of Mermaids. My entire <laughs> discourse up until one episode of Things Fell Apart where I kind of felt I had to do something about the origin story of trans rights was that. And it, and it caused me, it's, it's kind of caused mayhem in my life. I've had to block so many people. It's just been, it's mayhem. I want to talk to you about your writing because you're a prodigious writer well some are collections so it's yeah, like well, hard to i call a book a book right <laughs> even if they're collections you know i wrote this book when i was very young called clubbed class like a sort of novelty stocking filler book mm. but i wrote my proper first book them mm. 
a few years later. Mm. And then was then nominated for the Guardian First Book Award, mm. shortlisted. And I got a call from, from like the head of the judges saying, is it true that, you've, mm. that this isn't your first book, that you've written another book? And I was like, well, it's book-shaped. But let's get to the root. I mean, where did all this come from? Was dad and mum very literate and writing and all the rest of it? Or just you or God? Pretty much just me. My, my Auntie Mavis... No God. <laughs> God. My Auntie Mavis was in the business. She was the only Ronson who was in the business. When she was 19, she was shipwrecked with opium smugglers. Good God. Yeah, yeah and she met the Dalai Lama... Um, what was he doing on an opium note? That was in a different... But oh, she sorry. went away for like okay. a couple no, of they years. They weren't the same, same yeah. situation. Right. She wrote a book about it called We Never Meant to Go So Far. Just two <laughs> 19-year-old Jewish girls like going around the world getting involved with opium smugglers and yeah. stuff. So even though I like grew up in Cardiff, hmm. you know, my dad ran a warehouse, my mum was a social worker, like, I knew it was possible to do hmm. these hmm. things because hmm. my Auntie Mavis had done them. Hmm. Then when she got back... She started photographing the Rolling Stones, and so she became like a big music photographer, had an amazing... And then died when she was in her 40s. So she died when I was 10, I think. Mm. But she was there as this sort of, mm. there is a life outside this life. But what about your school reports? Did they say, this man writes like a dream? No, I think all of my reports were, were bland. No, nobody... The, the first time I was ever encouraged, other than my mother forcing me to volunteer at the local radio station, CBC Radio. John Ronson, we have something in common. Uh-huh. I, I, I had nothing in, in, in my childhood in terms of... They all thought I was very thick. Uh-huh. Uh, unimaginative and with no future. Right. And I don't know what went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, same, except I got into the Polytechnic of Central London yeah. journalism course, which was a very, like, it was a hard course to get into. But if I turned up your old uh, school reports... If I turned up your old essays, oh, they were all would seasoned. I find genius? No. Come on. No, definitely not. Um, so even you didn't think they were genius? No, something happened. Uh, what something I was, happened. What happened? Well, I got into Central London Polytechnic, and that's a hard course to get into. Mm. I remember there was like, like 2,000 applicants for 30 places. So getting in there was kind of, I mean, thank God. And they let you in because you were so odd. I, you know, I think, yeah. I think, I think every year they had... They wanted to get like one or two odd people. <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy in the year ahead of me called Trevor Miller who was odd in a similar way. So I think they were looking for the odd one and, and that was me. That's such an important statement. Right. I do think so. Yeah. I, I really think that people who have the wit to pull in some odd people to jazz up what's going on mm. and wake up the people who are of great ability. Yes. And then themselves become very able. Yes, I really think that happened, and and, it, and thank God for them to do that. But anyway, so I get to college, and I started writing for the college magazine, McGarrell, and there was this really charismatic teacher there, uh, David Cardiff, who, who again died young, was married to Lynn Barber. Mm. Uh, so we idolised David Cardiff, partly because he was married to Lynn Barber, and partly because he was just so dashing and funny and urbane. And he took me out for a coffee and said, you are the only person who writes for McGowell who knows how to write well. And that was like, that was my first, uh, other than my mother making me go to, to volunteer at the radio station, that was my first kind of compliment. And, and But if I dug up your school reports from the age of 10, surely somewhere, someone would have said, 
He can write. I don't think so. Mrs. Moore, my English teacher from Cardiff High, later said that she always saw promise in me. <laughs> Retrospective <laughs> yeah, judgment. But I'm not sure. I, I remember my reports were being very like mediocre. I was just mediocre. You were terrible. Were you like <laughs> were you like E's awful, and F's? Awful. I was like C's and D's. Yes. Yeah. If I hadn't been able to sing, I'd have been a dunce. Right. Did you get like a scholarship for singing? I did. I did. Well, for no, sing? I mean I got accepted as a chorister of Winchester Cathedral. And so the music worked. The academic stuff right. was up the kyber. Right. <laughs> That's so funny. What's your ambition? Now. Now. I'm, I definitely feel, after 35 years of, like, never stopping, the last couple of years since the pandemic, I've slowed down a bit. And I'd say my ambition is definitely to continue to live a more balanced life. Um, but still to contribute. Oh, yeah. But I don't feel desperate to contribute all the time, as, yeah. I, as I used to. Yes, that's madness. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very happy to contribute once a year with, like, a well-placed thing. Uh, I'm writing another book. I've started writing another book, and I'm doing the second season of Things Fell Apart. I'm really interested in looking at that stuff we touched on earlier about how some of the problems with ideology trumping factual evidence... It's, it's happening not just on the right, but on the left and in mm, the centre mm. too. That's something, I think that's a sort of new thing. I mean, it's always been there, but it's there more now than it used to be. And that's an area I'm really interested in. So, John Ronson, you seem to me to be dangerously happy. I am pretty happy. It's nice to be back in London. Could you always have said you were happy? Oh, no. I, uh, so this is a good moment. I guess I'm more... I remember my mother saying to me, we get less ambitious when we get older. I, I don't feel... I don't think things are perfect. Like, well, perfect would be hell. Yeah. My agent said to me the other day, you're unusually sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> she said, you're highly sensitive to an unusual degree. So I think there is, there is a wound there. Like I was really badly bullied as a kid. And if I feel sort of disrespected, like if I've, if I've, bent over backwards to be like a really good person towards somebody like thoughtful and considerate and then they do something back to me that's you know bad when that happens like I feel like hurt and I get upset and and I'm too sensitive about those things so it's not like I just wander around in a big cloud of happiness but we live in a nice place upstate in a little village called Germantown very mixed Trump to the left of us Biden to the right there's like every election there's like lawn side wars going on nice country lanes I go for long walks and really like my own company well John Ronson it's been a joy to talk to you in full flow and I've really enjoyed every minute of it oh John well thank you and I'm glad I've broken I'm sorry for this metaphor you've broken my podcast, podcast virginity. virginity I haven't how what we're in unison. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Chad. That was John Ronson, generously guiding my first steps into podcasting. If you want to enjoy more of John's stories, there are links to his books and his BBC series in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing new episodes every Tuesday, so do please subscribe on your platform of choice, because there will be many interesting guests visiting Snowcast HQ. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. And I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now.